Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. With my co-host Eric Raskin, I am Kira Mulvaney. Um, Eric, I don't know if you saw this. We're, we're not doing a Tweet of the Week segment anymore, but but th there's a good tweet that I think is worth opening up with. It was from uh, at Boston Pro Boxing. Uh, and they tweeted the other day that, uh, quote, in what may have been a first in boxing history, pro debutante Javier Torres delayed the start of his fight versus Nicholas Tejeda, 3-0 with two KOs, Wednesday in Wyndham, New Hampshire, when he had to de-glove to remove his nipple piercing. <laughs> um, to which I have two comments. One, I, I was actually DMing with the folks behind that account recently because they figured their cards were the closest regular cards to me here in Vermont. And I said, I'd be very interested in going, but I couldn't go to that most recent one that was the day before Thanksgiving. Instant regret. Instant regret. I <laughs> would have loved to have been ringside for that. Um, and secondly, um, Javier, come on, dude. Look, I know it's your debut, but that's that's a rookie mistake. How hard is it to check to make sure your nipple piercing is removed? <laughs> I do it before every podcast, personally. Whether we're on Zoom or not, right. I always manage to take it out. I, I, you know what? Lesson learned, I guess, Javier. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, of course you take it out. You, you wouldn't want to get a nip ring caught in your headset wire or something exactly. like that. This is dangerous. Uh, this is a dangerous Very business dangerous. we're in. Yeah. Exactly. Just basic common sense to take it out. Um, and, and I'll now kindly request that we try to get through the rest of the podcast without <laughs> you saying anything that causes me to picture your nipples. If, if we could do that. Um, um, I just gotta, just gotta put a line through some of my notes here. <laughs> yes. Cross it all out. <laughs> um, th this is, this is hardly the most TMI conversation that I've had recently. However, um, uh -oh. I was, I was at a pre Thanksgiving gathering of several couples, one of those friends giving parties uh, mm -hmm. that are, that are catching uh, some steam. And uh, before long, it split into the wives talking about, whatever wives talk about and the husbands having their own conversation and our topic du jour somehow turned out to be penis tattoos with, <laughs> with the discussion mostly centering around in what state of excitement one receives the tattoo and then whether the tattoo is designed to expand or contract. And uh, just like that, all of our listeners are Thanks, wishing everyone. we'd Good go night. back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Should we just walk away there? Probably best. Yeah, or or, or go back um, to talking about nipple piercings, maybe. Yeah, or or here's the here's the third way we could try and focus on some boxing. That seems kind of silly, but if I you insist, know. I don't. Just know. seems like a possible path to follow. Let's see <laughs> right, where fine. it goes. Um, this week on the podcast, we will welcome an old friend, uh, International Boxing Hall of Famer Nigel Collins, to talk about his newly published anthology book hooking off the jab, as well as to give his thoughts on Tank versus Garcia, Canelo, and more. Um, we'll preview a pair of trilogy fights, Chocolatito Estrada 3 and Fury Chisora 3, which demonstrate that not all trilogy fights are created equal. Plus, Eric will put me to the test with a round of our new classic fight guessing game, and he'll count down the top five fighters from Louisiana. And speaking of fighters from Louisiana... We start with the biggest fight of this past weekend, in which New Orleans' Regis Progray claimed a vacant 140-pound belt with perhaps the best and biggest win of his career, stopping Jose Cepeda in the 11th round in Carson, California on Saturday night. Yep, atop an off-brand pay-per-view card, what looked to many of us like a near-even matchup coming in turned out to be dominated by Progray. Zapata had a good first round or two, but then Progray, boxing beautifully behind the jab, using lots of feints, just totally took over, while Zapata wouldn't or couldn't do much in return. It finally started to feel like a fight worthy of the arena in which it was held in the 10th round, but 
that excitement didn't last long because early in the 11th, Progray landed a chopping left hand. Zepeda backed into the ropes and Progray finished him off, ref Ray Corona stopping it at 59 seconds of the round. Progray, now with four straight wins since his close loss to Josh Taylor, is 28-1 with 24 KOs, while Zepeda, 0-3 in title challenges, slips to 35-3 with 27 knockouts. Kieran, how did Progray separate himself in this fight, and who would you like to see him fight next? Look, as they say, there are levels in this game, and mm. I think Progray demonstrated he's simply a level above Zepeda. Look, Zepeda's an excellent action fighter, but Progray is a master boxer puncher, and he, and he deployed those skills effectively. Uh, first of all, I thought his defense was on point. You, you talked about his feints. Um, mm. His guard and upper body movement just enabled him to slip or deflect a lot of Zepeda's incoming artillery. Not all of it. He was pretty marked up afterwards. Zepeda fought as well as he could. Um, but... What was, I think, good about what Progray was doing is that even as he was slipping those punches, he always had his feet planted just where he wanted them. So as he did so, as he slipped, he was able to punch with Zepeda, punch in between his punches. He was able to land cleanly before Zepeda even had a chance to bring his hands back and his guard up. Um, Progray's southpaw left in particular was hugely effective. I mean, he controlled the distance very well with the jab and he hooked off that jab, but it was that left hand that really was the difference maker, I thought. He, he threw it behind the jab as a straight left. He threw it as a counter overhand. He threw it as a lead left. Zepeda just didn't seem to be able to tell when it was coming, what angle it was coming from. And so Progray just kept chip, chip, chipping away until he eventually broke um, Zepeda down. And after those first couple of rounds that you mentioned that were quite close, Progray was able to, by doing that, start forcing Zepeda backward and boxing off the back foot is not Zepeda's game at all. I, I thought it was really a masterclass in how to neutralize and disarm and defeat an aggressive, dangerous foe. And it was a reminder of, of why so many were so excited about Progray during his ascent and right. why he didn't deserve to be written off after the narrowest of losses to, to Josh Taylor. Um, look, a Taylor rematch is something I'd love to see if Taylor sticks around at 140 pounds. I'd be happy to see him in against the likes of Gary Antoine Russell or Subriel Matias. Let's just mm. give him another opportunity to show his kind of matador qualities. But, you know, the fight that really leaps out to me right now, Teofimo Lopez. Mm. If Pro Bellum and Top Rank could work out a deal, and assuming Lopez gets past Sandor Martin, right. that's the matchup for me at 140, I think. But um, but give me your thoughts on Zepeda. Were you disappointed by his performance or his lack of fire? And were you a little disappointed in the fight, given that you said last week you hoped for a fight of the year candidate? Yeah, I, I was a little disappointed in the fight. And, you know, maybe it's my own fault. I probably slightly overhyped it in my mind. Um, but it didn't come close to living up to the billing that I and most hardcore fans gave it. Um, before I get too deep into any criticisms, uh, I should pause and give Regis Progray his credit. You know, yeah. if, if I was disappointed in the fight or in Zapata's performance, a lot of that is down to Progray being on point, boxing beautifully, not wanting a war and not allowing a war. He did exactly what he needed to do. And then the first time Zapata was hurt, Progray finished the show. So all credit to him. But... Yeah, Zapata, he, he didn't fight like I would have expected him to. Uh, remember that he'd had two cracks at Alphabet titles before. Mm -hmm. He lost on an injury to Terry Flanagan in 2015. He lost on a controversial decision to Jose Ramirez in 2019. Joan Zapata is on the shortlist for best active boxers never to win a title. Mm. This is his third shot. He's 33. He's got to win this one. So... If you told me going in that after five or six rounds, 
He's getting outboxed. He's falling behind. I wouldn't have found that at all surprising. I would have thought for sure he would go for broke after that and, and eat whatever punches he needs to eat to try to get into some big exchanges with Progray and make it a war and not settle for just going the distance, which he didn't go the distance anyway, but he, he fought some rounds as if that was his mentality. In his defense, I think the advice from his corner was not helping. Uh, after mm. three rounds, they told him he was behind 3 nothing, which was a lie. He clearly <laughs> won the first round, and, and the second was close. Then a few rounds later, they went the other way. They told him he was winning. That was also a lie. So I don't know for sure what he was thinking, but it's possible... He thought the fight was closer than it was and that he could just keep going along boxing. He didn't need to change anything up in the middle rounds. That's possible. But I think there's a, a combination of, of factors that may have made him not want to go to war. The first is, once you survive a fight like that Baranchik fight, not everyone's willing to go through that sort of thing again. Mm, you know, maybe yeah, Cepeda yeah. only had one of those in him, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and also I think he was wary of Progray's speed and power and, and thought that it wouldn't be wise to go balls to the wall and, and give him openings. Um, and also Progray landed a few good body shots in the first half of the fight. And so maybe those sapped some of Zapata's energy. Progray was by far the more relaxed fighter. Uh, Zapata, on the other hand, looked a little tense. Maybe he gassed a bit. Um, Zapata had no head movement all fight. Mm. It, it, it added up to maybe not an easy win for Progray. That's not that's not the right word, but a decisive win, not yeah. an especially competitive fight. And and so I think Cepeda faces a real career crossroads now. Hopefully, he still has some fire in his belly. But if not, if what we saw Saturday night, if this is going to be the most fire he can muster, I don't think it's going to get any better for him from here. Mm. Um, there were a few interesting fighters in action on that pay-per-view undercard. Uh, open with Fernando Vargas Jr., scoring a second-round KO win over Alejandro Martinez. Then undefeated U.S. Olympian Charles Conwell uh, fought through an early cut over his left eye to win a majority decision over Juan Carlos Abreu, uh, followed by heavyweight prospect Bakatia Jalalov, who we know well, mm -hmm. staying unbeaten with a fourth-round KO of Curtis Harper. And finally, for two women's junior flyweight bouts, Yoka Valle edged Evelyn Bermudez by majority decision. Eric, your quick thoughts on any of those fights? Yeah, I'll give you very quick thoughts on each of them. Uh, Vargas Jr., I didn't learn anything against this great of opponent. Mostly... I'm just weirded out that this kid I met when he was like 18 months old sitting on the dais with his dad <laughs> is now fighting on my TV screen. That makes me feel even older than I typically feel. Um, also, he entered the ring to Thunderstruck by ACDC, which I think uh, I've said this before, but come on, retire that song. It, it belongs to Arturo Gatti in a boxing contest context. rather. Um, Conwell, uh, for, that shouldn't have been a, a majority decision. Uh, he really kicked ass the second half of the fight. The first half was close, but this was like a 7-3 fight, maybe 6-4, not 5-5. Five, five. Um, it was a fun scrap. Abreu has a hell of a chin. Conwell showed grit and poise, but he looked maybe a half notch below true blue chip prospect status in this fight. Jalalov, this was a showcase. Harper posed no threat to him whatsoever, except when he threw the most blatant intentional headbutt I've ever seen in a boxing match. The junkyard dog would have been proud. Uh, he was correctly deducted a point, uh, but clearly Harper was looking for a way out. He knew he had no chance. Jalalov continues to look like a potential future heavyweight champ, but we won't really know until the opposition improves. And then Bermudez Valle, that was the fight of the night. I thought 
early on that Bermudez was too skillful, but Valle really rallied after a slow first couple of rounds. They both showed a lot of skill and toughness. I wouldn't be at all opposed to a rematch here, and Valle is definitely a fighter to watch. And I don't just mean at the weigh-ins when she's wearing thong underwear, although uh, she can continue to do that if she wants to. And I'll, I'll stop there before I cross over into full creepy old man territory. Probably best, yes. Yes, okay. <laughs> um, a couple of fights in England on Saturday worth a mention, both seeing veteran contenders hand up-and-comers their first defeat. In heavyweight action at Wembley Arena, Dillian White improved to 29-3 and with 19 knockouts, with a majority decision win over Jermaine Franklin, who's now 21-1, 14 KOs. Scores were 115-115 and 116-112 twice. Meanwhile, at the O2 Arena, John Ryder, in his first fight since upsetting Daniel Jacobs in February, defeated Zach Parker when what had been a close fight ended prematurely at the start of the fifth round with Parker retiring due to what he believed to be a broken right hand. Parker, who nearly fought Demetrius Andrade this month before Andrade decided he wasn't interested, falls to 22-1 with 16 KOs, while Ryder is now 32-5, 18 knockouts, and may be under consideration to face Canelo Alvarez next May. Uh, Kieran, thoughts on Ryder as a potential Canelo opponent, on Parker taking his first loss in this manner, on the close White Franklin decision, or on anything else here? Um, take Ryder and Parker first. This is, you know, not much to break down. Um, look, tough loss for Parker. Horrible way to 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 suffer your first loss. I I thought Parker was boxing well actually in the first few rounds until Ryder started to catch him cleanly and and seemingly hurt him in round four. And maybe that was because uh, or exacerbated by Parker hurting his hand and not being right. able to keep him off. I I don't know. It's the the crowd was unhappy. Obviously, I think they didn't know exactly what was going on. It's it's literally and figuratively a tough break for Parker. Um, you know, he he said he he broke it with a landing an uppercut, and you know, could he have soldiered on? I don't know. Not for me to say. I get upset when I have a when I have a hangnail. So <laughs> so I'm not the right person to say. But uh, good for Ryder. I I feel I find myself rooting a little bit for Ryder. Um, he's been on a roll for a few years now. He he had that disappointing and, and controversial loss to Callum Smith. Right. Then he had that very close win that you mentioned over Daniel Jacobs. Uh, and now he might be in a position to fight Canelo. Um, he's the real kind of late career bloomer. Um. I could see that fight happening. You know, Canelo might be looking, or as indicated, he might be looking for an interimish kind of fight in right. May before facing Dimitri Bivol or someone, you know, in, in September. Ryder fits that belt. Look, Canelo should squash him. Uh, but, you know, nonetheless, Ryder, I think, has, has done enough to deserve that payday and that opportunity. So I would not be at all surprised if, if we see that happen. Um as for White Franklin, uh, there was some outrage online about the scoring of that fight. Uh, but honestly, I, I don't think Jermaine Franklin was robbed in any way. I, I thought White won the fight, okay. although granted, not necessarily by 116-112. But, you know, several of the rounds were very close because for many of them, neither man really did enough to truly separate himself from the other. Mm. I, I will give Franklin credit. I thought he looked better than I've seen him before. Um, he showed flashes of skill and hand speed, but... He just never looks fully committed in there. I, I don't know if it's conditioning or his mental makeup, but you just want to see more from him. And, and it's so very rarely, he, I've still yet to see him fight for three minutes in a round. Um, White looked at times in there like someone who is getting close to being a spent force. I feel like that fight was there for Franklin to win, but 
He didn't grab it by the scruff of the neck, didn't act like someone who was in the other guy's backyard, didn't try to take it away from White. It's why Franklin's been so frustrating to watch and why I very much doubt that he'll ever live up to the potential and hype there. Um, seems like White may get a rematch with Anthony Joshua, and I'd actually pick AJ to beat him again because it's starting to feel like the end of the road is approaching a little bit for White, I think. Um, I did want to uh, add a couple quick notes on the undercard of White Franklin. Okay. Um, I was very impressed by uh, Fabio Wardley, who dropped Nathan Gorman three times before winning by TKO in round three to become British heavyweight champion. Wardley's 15-0 with 14 knockouts as a professional. If you include all his amateur bouts, which were basically all white-collar fights, he's had a grand total of 19 contests. Mm. And yet here he is as British champion, uh, which once upon a time was a bit of a punchline, but uh, not anymore. Right. <laughs> the UK is churning out these these heavyweights these days uh wardley may be somebody to watch and there was a real highlight real unique stoppage on the undercard clavon clark he's a cruiserweight prospect he moved to four and oh with a second round stoppage of jose ulrich he landed this tyson-esque almost combo of a right hand to the body and a right uppercut and that completely scrambled Ulrich's brain. Amazingly, it looked like Ulrich was trying to fight. He bobbed <laughs> and he weaved a little bit. He tried to throw a punch, but his motor skills were gone. He, his, he was completely short-circuited, um, even as he was standing up. And full credit to Clark for... Looks like he, he was thinking about throwing another punch, but held back. And credit also to referee Reese Carter for acting rapidly to step in and halt the fight. It was a reminiscent of Alicia Baumgartner's weird mm. stoppage of Terry Harper last year, where Harper was literally sort of out on her feet as well. Crazy to watch. Really, really weird looking knockout. Yeah, you sent me that clip. I don't know if I would have uh, seen it otherwise. And uh, yes, never quite seen anything like the way that he was wobbling after that punch and uh, attempting to continue fighting, even though this. <laughs> body was not cooperating at all and agree with you good good restraint from the guy who could have punched him and good job by the ref to jump right in there and uh looking ahead to next weekend as kieran noted at the top of the show we have two third chapters in rivalries two major championship fights but they don't have much in common beyond that Uh, i'll give you the honor kieran of analyzing the fun one the one the boxing world is actually looking forward to in 2012, Roman Chocolatito Gonzalez won a close but clear decision over then-little-known Juan Francisco Estrada in defense of his junior flyweight championship. More than nine years passed before they met a second time in March 2021, with Estrada winning a disputed split decision at the end of an outstanding super flyweight scrap. Each man has won one fight since then. A rubber match has been planned and delayed a couple of times, but finally, 10 years after their first showdown, 35-year-old Chocolatito and 32-year-old Estrada meet for a third time this Saturday night in Glendale, Arizona, with DAZN streaming the super flyweight bout. A few questions for you, Kieran. Uh, How likely do you think it is that the third fight will live up to the standards set by the first two? Everyone agrees Chocolatito will walk into the Hall of Fame no problem when his career is over. But to what extent do you think Estrada's Hall of Fame candidacy is on the line Saturday? And lastly, who do you favor to win? First of all, thank you for setting me up to talk about this one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no problem. <laughs> to take the um, middle question first, I don't think Estrada's Hall of Fame candidacy should be on the line at this point. Um, this era of sort of 108 through 115 pounders has been dominated by Estrada, Chocolatito, Srisaketso, Rungvisai, Carlos Cuadras. Estrada has a win against each of the other three. Hmm. Um, he also has a loss to Gonzalez and Srisaket, and his win against Chocolatito was controversial somewhat, as you mentioned. Um, but he also has wins against Alexa Brian Valoria, Hernan Marquez, Giovanni Segura, Felipe Orucata, among others. 
And outside of an early points loss when he was 21, his only defeats have been to Strisaket and Chocolatito, both officially at least avenged. So, look, a clear win here would be icing on the cake, but I would be very surprised if whatever happens next weekend, Estrada does not ultimately wind up in the hall, and I think he should do. Uh, The difference is, I think, a win here for Chocolatito underlines his status as the superior of the two. Um, Whereas given the controversy of the rematch scoring, plus Chocolatito's all-time great body of work, a win for Estrada wouldn't necessarily do the same for him. Um, Could this be as good as their previous meetings, and particularly that last one? Well, they're both in their 30s now, as you mentioned. Um, Little guys are not supposed to still be performing at such a high level this far into their careers and lives. It is entirely possible that at any moment, one or both of them could suddenly find it just isn't happening for them anymore. Um, And that they won't know they don't have it until they step into the ring and it just isn't there. And I actually felt for sure that Gonzalez was at that point in his career five years ago. Um, And yet here we still are. Estrada did look somewhat uninspiring in his last outing against Argy Cortez, but it had been about 18 months since he last fought, and maybe that was a factor there. So given how well they match up, given their skill, given their experience, I do fully expect him to put on another excellent performance. And I favor Chocolatito. Um, since he looked down and out in that second fight with, Choc- with Frisicat, right. he he's looked excellent. In fact, it's as good as ever somehow. Um, and I actually did think he won the rematch. Um, but I think at that is this stage, it just feels that Chocolatito has that much more. How? I just don't know, but he does. And I do think he is inherently that little bit better. So I'm going to pick him to prevail in another closely contested and skillful 12-round distance fight, I think. Um, the other trilogy fight on Saturday takes place in London with ESPN Plus televising. It's for the lineal heavyweight title. And it, too, comes more than a decade after the first meeting. In 2011, two 14-0 prospects, Tyson Fury and Derek Tushar, uh, squared off, and Fury won a fairly wide unanimous decision. They rematched in 2014, with Chisora's corner retiring him at the end of the 10th round. Uh, Fury has gone on to greatness. Chisora's had his ups and downs. He now has 12 losses. There was no reason to think a third fight between them would ever happen or needed to happen, but here we are. Um, Fury wanted to keep busy fight before the end of the year. And he chose Jasora. Uh, Eric, do you see any chance at all of a Fury let down here? Are you at all interested in this fight? Or are you perhaps maybe a bit more interested in the co-feature, Daniel Dubois against Kevin Lorena? So I do think there's a chance of a somewhat flat Fury performance. Um, not a high likelihood, but it's possible. But I still don't see any possible way he actually loses this fight, no matter how big a letdown he has. Um, yeah. All credit to Chisora for his win over Kubrat Pulev in July. He snapped a three-fight losing streak. He fought well. He's always been tough and game. But his A game now still loses to Tyson Fury's D-minus game, I would yeah. say. Um, yeah. I don't know if these two have become pals or something, and, and Fury just wants to get Chisora a payday. I'm not sure why he chose Chisora exactly, but there is no reason for this fight to be happening. There was nothing left to clarify from their first two fights. This is more of a mismatch now than ever before, but it's Tyson Fury. It's the best heavyweight of the era fighting, still in his prime, so I will watch. Like, you wouldn't not watch Ali versus Cleveland Williams or or, or Tyson versus Carl the Truth Williams. I don't mean to single out all the Williamses. But, you know, and it's not on pay-per-view over here. That's good. So I will watch Fury Tesora 3. And, yeah, the co-feature certainly helps. Uh, It it is a good fight on paper. We all know Dubois, a lot of talent. 
lost to Joe Joyce. It was an upset at the time, but in retrospect, right. no shame in that loss. Dubois could still be a future champ. Nobody has pushed him at all since the Joyce fight. I think Lorena could. He's 28 and 1 with 14 KOs. He's a Southpaw from South Africa in his prime at age 30. He hasn't fought anyone all that good, but he's taken care of business when needed. KO3 over Sefer Safari, KO4 over Bogdan Dinu. He shut out washed Marius Vak just a couple months ago. I like this fight. I don't think it'll be easy for Dubois. And if it is easy for him, that'll tell us very good things about Dubois, who, by the way, is still just 25 years old, which a 25-year-old heavyweight, that's like that's like a 19-year-old lightweight. So um, <laughs> yeah. plenty of time for him to work his way to the top. Indeed. All right. Our guest this week has been covering boxing for almost 50 years. He had two spells as editor-in-chief of The Ring magazine, was inducted into the International Boxing Hall of Fame in 2015, and is the author most recently of Hooking Off the Jab, Nigel Collins on Boxing, an anthology. Nigel Collins, welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here. So uh, full disclosure, Nigel, uh, I, I have not yet read the book. I have it. Uh, I'm holding it up now on the Zoom for proof, right. uh, but uh, <laughs> I, I'm saving it to read over my winter vacation. But Yeah, I read that. <laughs> right. You'll but never I... get finished. <laughs> the one thing that's good about that, there's stories in here you've obviously read. That's that's exactly what I was about to say, is that I, I know I've read a good portion of what's in there, and I've probably even edited a few of the stories the first time around. Now, I don't know how closely you followed me on ESPN. There was right. a lot of those, like over 30 mm-hmm. in there. Okay. And in boxing news, you probably wouldn't have seen it all. Right. I mean, I think you may have like privately sent me one or two of those over the years when I asked to see one yeah. that I didn't have access to. But so here, here's what I, I'm curious is... Um, what you discovered about your own writing as you went back and read all of these articles from across several decades, like, did you have any moments of cringing at something you'd written years ago? Any moments of being really impressed with yourself? Any surprises about how your style and skills have evolved? What What did you discover as you went back and looked at your old work? Well, just let's get some dates here. Uh, my very first fight report for Ring Magazine, the fight was in 72 but it was at the end, like November. So it didn't get in ring until 73. So I could have either of those starting points, but none of that material is in there. I started with a, a story from um, 1980, and then it goes right up to today. And that, that was a, a story called the Philadelphia Death Squad. And um, and then what did I discover? Well, one thing I discovered is when I, you know, I thought this is going to be easy. <laughs> And it obviously is not as much work as a book, but pulling the stories you want out of thousands is tough. And then arranging them and then, you know, going back and forth with the publisher. But obviously, I think the the, the biggest thing is I think I'm writing better now than I did in 1980. Mm-hmm. But that story was more like a newsy story, you know, but it didn't need a lot of uh, good writing, just the facts. Um, I think my interests have, have changed a little bit. Um, I'm not that interested in boxing. <laughs> no, that's all. <laughs> <laughs> um, what I mean by that is if I'm not going to do a story about a fight or, you know, whatever that I'm getting paid for, I, I don't really watch all the fights. I watch the ones that I think are good. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as my style, yeah, I, I think it is. I, I found out um, 
if I'd actually put myself in some of these stories, they turned out better hmm. rather hmm. than just going in there and just, you know, doing a straight story. Um, I don't know why that is, but I think it has a lot to do with the fact when you actually experience something other than just watching a fight, that's how you really get your best stories. When I used to go to Vegas or California or somewhere for a fight, I always had one plan and one plan only, write the best story I could, you know, and that worked. Um, but I like to talk about stuff that aren't, isn't exactly always about boxing. Um, there's a story in there called uh, Sparring with Aikens, which is about the famous painter Thomas Aikens, mm -hmm. who painted boxers. Um, he once taught at the school I went to, Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts. So those two things sort of blended together, especially because you have to uh, submit a portfolio. And one of the things I submitted was a terrible um, picture of Dick Tiger fighting Gene Fulmer that I took off of the cover. I copied a cover and not very well, but they accepted me. And years later, I thought, well, maybe it was because of Aikens like boxing, but I really don't know why they accepted me. <laughs> but it, just in terms of the, the way that your style developed and, and you sort of saying that you feel like you're better now than you were looking back at the 1980s story, I remember uh, several of us saying to you when you started writing for ESPN after leaving the ring that wow this is some of your best writing uh, and that we sort of our theory was you were so distracted by having to edit and run a magazine that you weren't necessarily able to write at the same level as you were able to afterwards is that is that something that you've that you've found oh, looking back definitely whenever you guys said something nice about me i believe it uh, <laughs> but um yeah i mean also i think there's two things going here I discovered, and we've probably talked about this when we were working together, if I write a lot of stories, it's really hard to pull the magazine together and do everything else I got to do. Right. Um, and of course, when I was writing columns for ESPN, all I had to do was write them. And I think that really was a big thing when you've got time and your focus hasn't been on, oh, where are we going to get the pictures? How are we, you know, what are we going to do? Are we going to make the deadline? So all of that, it goes away. But I also think, you know, it's like practice. The more you do something, the better you get until you start to get senile or something like that. <laughs> which which has only partially started to happen. Yeah, it's, uh, you know. Well, you, I've never been a great speller. Oh. Uh, I thought spell check was a gift from God, <laughs> but I'm using it more now. <laughs> That's about the only thing I've noticed. Okay. So have you got any favorite pieces in that anthology? Like yeah, if somebody was uh, on the on the fence as to whether to buy it, what are the ones that you would say? check out these pieces well one that i wrote fairly recently that went over big and i really liked it it is a great story and it was very easy to write it was called 10 percent off the top uh the misadventures of a front man hmm. it was about when i managed five fighters a long time ago most wow. people don't even know i did it you know i didn't and there was a, there, you know, it's a very crazy thing. Um, there was one of the fighters I had, Alfonso Heyman, threatened to kill me, uh, you know, and, and I finally, I, we, I sold his contract to a gangster or somebody connected with the mob and he disappeared. They found his car at the airport. So I was dealing with some heavy characters. <laughs> um, and also the other one was Jerome Artist, who was a really good fighter. He beat uh, Sugar Ray Leonard in the National Golden Gloves. But he just liked to run the street and party. He could come off the street and go six rounds. Mm. 
and then maybe try to coast the last four. Maybe he, you know, get a draw or something. So he was a guy. He was, uh, you know, what they say, a, a million dollars worth of talent and a dime's worth of dedication. Mm. That was Jerome. Um, so that that was also quite an adventure going with him. The other three fighters were pretty good. Um, you remember the story, the sidebar about Fred Jenkins that uh, you were surprised at, Dev, uh, Eric? Yeah. Now, now I can't remember what the detail well, of it was. Yeah. One of the fighters I managed was a uh, his name was Fred Jenkins, who is now a pretty well known trainer. And uh, after about half a dozen fights or something like that, he came to me and said he didn't want to do it. And I said, fine. But this is what happened. He was having a six rounder at the Spectrum against an opponent from Philly that had an average record. It looked like it was going to be a good match. And so uh, I was sitting ringside and um, he wasn't, Fred wasn't throwing any punches or, or he not even really like he was trying other than to defend himself for the first two rounds. So I jumped out of my seat. I ran halfway up the, up the steps. I said, what the F are you doing, Fred? Get out there and throw some punches. And he just nodded and I went back and he didn't. So everybody knew the other guy whose name I forgot, I'm sorry, is um, going to win. And he did. Now, it wasn't long after that that Fred, Fred quit and became a trainer. And he offered me a bunch of fighters he had, like uh, Choo Choo Charlie Brown and, and guys like that from mm -hmm. the same gym. And I said, no, no, I, uh, managing, I mean, it's not really for me. I, I'm, I'm getting out of that, too. Uh, he would never tell Russell and I why he fought that way because he had another fight after that the blue horizon against archie andros and it was a war it could have gone either way but fred fred won the decision so 40 years later <laughs> after this instance he finally told us the truth uh i don't know why he didn't at first but you know that's his business he had this guy he was boxing was a friend of his when he was a kid they went to the swimming pool Fred got out of his depth and was drowning. And the other guy jumped in and saved his life. And that's why he didn't want to punch. Wow. Him. Yeah. It was it was a great little sidebar. And Eric obviously has forgotten all about it now. But <laughs> I, one it. of us is senile and it's not you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I mean, that's the sort of thing, you know, it's a cool story. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and um why he didn't tell us, I really don't know. But uh you know, he finally did. <laughs> and, uh, it, and that's why I wrote about it. I wouldn't have even wrote about it if it wasn't, if that wasn't true. I got to follow up. The one who disappeared, did he ever reappear again? The one that disappeared? No, that was not a fighter. That was the guy who bought Alfonso Heyman's oh, that was his, contract. Okay. Wow. And he was a guy that, I don't think he was a made man or anything like the mob, but he was an associate, sort of whatever. And he all he was he managed a lot of fighters over the years. And what I noticed about him, he could always get them on TV to plug the fight. Uh -huh. and I don't know how he did it. I can't remember exactly how long it was after you know we we, we uh, sold the contract, but it wasn't that long. And he, they found his car at the airport, <laughs> and nobody's wow. ever seen him since. Wow. So. And of course, Russell Peltz and I used to joke that Alfonso Heyman did the job. I, I could have done it, you know, but uh, somebody obviously bumped him off. Wow. wow. <laughs> Crazy. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to reading the book. I swear I will read it on my uh, on my upcoming vacation over winter break. But uh, how about it, you, Karen? Are you going to read it? Read it. I'll read it. Next I'll time you go to the North Pole. <laughs> there you yeah, go. Good you North go. Pole reading. Go. 
There you go. In February. There you go. <laughs> so let, let's get your take on some current topics, Nigel, um, right. st- starting with the tentatively scheduled Showtime pay-per-view that we're all looking forward to. Javante Davis against Ryan Garcia. Seems like Garcia really pushed hard and insisted that his promoter, Oscar De La Hoya, make some concessions to get this deal done. Does that make you think he sees something in Tank Davis that he believes he can exploit? And just in general, what do you think of the matchup? Who do you favor in it? Well, I don't know, uh, but I think he felt he was going to win, or he still feels he's going to win, and he's a confident young man. I don't think he really studied the style of Tank that much, you know, to figure it out, but maybe he did. But that's what it strikes me as. He's a confident young man, and, uh, you know, he wants to prove himself, and he thinks he can win. And I think both think they can win and make a decent payday. So as far as the fight goes, um, I think Tank will win because he's a harder puncher. But I could see it going the other way because uh, they're both really good at what they do. They're both very good boxers. They, they know their skills, and they can punch. So really anything could happen. And I think that's what the really great fights are when you don't know who the hell is going to win. And I think this is one of those. I'm looking forward to it. And I'm probably coming to your house for the (laughs) (laughs) pay-per-view. Unless unless I get to go to the fight, in which case you're uh, you're, you're out of luck. Which case he's still going to your house. (laughs) Right, yes. (laughs) You you can uh, hang out with my family, I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, We talked a bit on the part about what 2023 might have in store for Canelo. Uh, he seems really determined to go ahead with a rematch with Dimitri Bivol. If you were managing him or advising him, is that something you'd steer him toward or away from? I wouldn't let him do it again. No. Nah. Mm. Um, I mean, it, this is not 100%, but very often the guy who wins the first fight wins the second. That's, you know, I think the percentage are higher on that, although the other guy winning is, happens quite a bit too. Um, So we had uh, Margaret Goodman on the podcast last week, someone Mm -hmm. whose uh, side career as a writer you uh, you kickstarted when you invited her to write for the ring. Um, We asked her how much it bothers her to see older fighters doing these exhibition fights. And and, and she said quite a bit that it bothered her. Um, How about you? I mean, you covered all these guys when you hear that a, a Mayweather or a Pacquiao or a Hatton or a Holyfield is doing an exhibition fight. Do you get upset or you're pretty numb to it? What's your reaction? I just don't watch it. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you know, like I say, I, I'm pretty choosy about what I watch now. Uh, stuff that I know is obviously not a real fight. I, I don't bother watching because a lot of them are pay-per-view anyway. But right, I, mean, right. I don't know if I'd watch them even if they were on free TV or ESPN. I, I really don't know. But like, uh, like Manny, let's say Manny in particular, because I know you had a, a, a pretty strong affection for him uh, throughout his career. When you hear that he's still getting in the ring, even if it's an exhibition and usually against someone that I think he's not in any danger against, does that does it get you upset to hear that these guys aren't walking away or you've just been covering the sport too long that it's part of the territory? Uh, nobody walks away until they can't <laughs> fight anymore at all. But I, I, with Manny, I don't haven't really read if it's going to be a boxing match, an MMA fight, or a mixture. But I think it's pretty obvious that if it, they're boxing, the boxer will always win. If it's MMA, the MMA fighter will win. That's I remember when James Tony got beat that way right. a long time ago. 
And he's a great fighter and still was. Well, not as good as he was when he was younger, but uh, he didn't stand a chance. It was all over really quick. So mm -hmm. it just depends uh, what style they're going to go at each other. And I can, you know, up until now, it's mainly been boxing. They mm -hmm. make the MMA guy box. Right. But and that doesn't work out well for them, except maybe at the bank. <laughs> right. <laughs> um. One final thing you've you know, seen fighters come and go. You've written, you know, the book covers several decades of covering fighters. Looking at the the guys who are fighting now, who are the two or three or maybe fewer guys who are actively fighting now who you look at and think, you know what? He could be competitive in any era. Well, there's quite a few. I feel that in any era, especially since maybe the 1940s or 50s, um, you know, you can compare them. I definitely think uh, Bud Crawford could have. Uh, I, I mean, I'm not controlling his career. I think he is now. And and, and I've missed watching him fight. I, I wonder if he's losing, you know, the mm. best years of his career, like uh, Garcia did, you know, Mikey. Mm. Uh, so, you know, that why worries me. Uh, let me think who else it is. Well, obviously, Chocolatito. Mm -hmm. I'm looking forward to his next fight, you know. Um, in the heavyweight division, I think Tyson Fury would be a tough fight for any yep. heavyweight in history. Yeah. Now, he talks a lot of bullcrap most of yep. the time. But when he talks about what he's going to do in a fight, God damn, he goes out and does it. Yeah. Right. You know, so I, I think what he said recently, he's having this terrible fight uh, coming up. And what he said was, this is the only way he can fight off his depression and whatever yeah. other emotional or um, things are going on. And, and I believe that. Yeah. I think that's one of the things he said that wasn't about the fight, that he was being honest, you know. And I think that, uh, you know, he's uh, I think he's a great fighter. I mean, I, yeah, he gets knocked down. <laughs> he gets up. He's undefeated. He's fought the best around, you know, until now. Usyk is obviously, uh, I think AJ would just, I think he could beat AJ very easily. Yeah. Um, instead of like Usyk's at a heavyweight is not a big puncher, um, you know, uh, but uh, I think uh, obviously Fury is a big puncher and a big guy. And it really, you know, Boxing's been his life, as it is with most boxers. But uh, I didn't like it when he was saying a lot of objectionable things about different kinds of people. Right. But uh, I think underneath it all, he's a pretty good guy. I, I don't know. That's just me. I've never met him. I've never even interviewed him. But I, th I think he could he could fight in any era and uh, have a good chance of winning. Yeah, that's a pretty good selection. I would definitely go with those three, actually. All right. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Nigel, look, thanks a lot, man. We really appreciate it. And best of luck with the book. It is now available, right? People can go on to yes, Amazon or uh, elsewhere. We've, I've had a couple of signings. Um, I've got another one uh, actually in, in Manhattan at the Trinity Gym on the 8th of December. I, I, if it does as good as sales-wise as Boxing Babylon, I'd be very happy. Oh, oh good. So good, subtle, sneaky plug there for your other book as well, Boxing Babylon. Although, is, is that, uh, do, you, do you still get any money if anyone buys that? Or uh, it just. Uh... No, I mean, this is the thing. I own the rights to it. Uh, hmm. I won't bother to tell you why. It's a long story, but um, 
the ones that are on sale now are ones that people had read and want to sell. And there's certain people that, you know, when there's a lot of books left over that they don't, they can't sell anymore. They buy them up real cheaply. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's probably those, but you know, sometimes they're pretty expensive when you look it up there on, mm-hmm. uh, on Amazon. So there's not many of those floating around. I have two or three. Um, my publisher, said, well, you could do it again, you know, put it out again. And I, I don't know if I want to do that, but uh, I'm getting real lazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, not, not not too lazy if you just published another book. So. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, Nigel, thanks a lot, man. We really well, appreciate you, you coming guys. on. I mean, really, it was fun for me, and maybe you'll help me sell a few books. All right, our thanks again to Nigel. Always great to catch up with him. All right, Karen, are okay. you ready to play? The fight game. Yeah, <laughs> we have a name for this segment now. Um, I think it's perfect in its simplicity. I should note that I came up with it. So, of course, I think it's perfect. <laughs> but it's a game where you guess the fight. So it's the fight the game. The fight game. There yeah. you go. Um, I enjoyed the first go round last week. You had me trying to guess Tyson Burbick. Uh, now I've picked a famous fight. And it's up to you to try to guess it. I will give you three clues. And I think I have the clues in order of decreasing difficulty. Uh, okay. Let's see. Your first clue. This fight featured a reigning champ defending against an ex-champ, both generally regarded, not unanimously, but generally, as top 10 all-time in this division. Well, that narrows it down. (laughs) Come on. Your first clue to me last week was the arena has changed names. So, you know, the first clue is not supposed to lead you all the way there. But but, but here's the the framework. Reigning champ against ex-champ. Both generally regarded as top ten all time in the division. You want to throw a guess out there? Is it a Morales Barrera match? It is not, but that's a perfectly fine guess, and okay. uh, I think you can make a case that those guys are top ten at one of the divisions yeah. in which they fought. So, okay, all right. First clue and first guess out of the way. Clue number two. This ties in nicely with the interview we just conducted. Okay. The fight was on the East Coast. And Nigel Collins was there to cover it as a writer and at the last minute got called over to do color commentary on the international broadcast because I guess someone didn't show. And it was his call that got replayed all the time on ESPN Classic afterward. Now, this could be a total giveaway clue if you happen to know that story. But Mm -hmm. if not, all I've really told you is that it was an East Coast fight during the 50 years that Nigel has been covering boxing. Do you happen to know, do you happen to know that? Story? No, I don't. Know, okay. I don't know the story or, or, okay. the, or the fight at all. So that's just completely unhelpful. <laughs> I guess I'm doing my job. I don't know. I guess I, so I didn't far. want to be completely unhelpful at this point. I wanted you to be at least sniffing around it a little bit, but uh, that you, you don't even want to wager another guess, uh, an East coast fight between a champ and an ex champ from the last. And I'm going uh, to guess that. Nigel was there as a writer and got, I'm going to guess it wasn't this century. Like it was 1980s, 1990s. Is that a reasonable guess? Uh, sure. I will I will answer that your question within a question and say, yes, it is one of those two decades. Should I move on to the third and you final probably clue? probably should. <laughs> I think this is the point last time at which I said I can't even come up with a guess, so give me the third right. clue. So I'll do the same for you. All right. Your third and final clue. This fight is credited as a landmark occasion in changing the televised boxing business. Oh. 
I could have gone a little more specific there and maybe totally given it away. Uh, but this clue, I still thought this clue might have given it away totally, but uh, I guess not instantly. A landmark occasion in changing the televised boxing business. So how would it have done that? Was it in some kind of pay-per-view sense or... Uh, Yes, that, that's the word that I could have put in there in uh, landmark occasion in changing the pay-per-view boxing business. So it was a big pay-per-view on the East Coast. I'll get even a little more specific with that clue that the people who put this on credit this fight as the one that convinced them pay-per-view can be a big thing. Pay-per-view can work. <sighs> Was it Leonard Hagler? It was not. It was a little later than that. So I'll move on to the, okay. the clue you gave me last week of saying the year. I'll tell you the year now. Yeah. The year is 1991. 1991. Reigning champ against an ex-champ. Both top 10-ish, probably, in this division all time. On the East Coast, 1991 changed the pay-per-view boxing business. And we've now reached the point at which when I say yeah. it, you're going to feel stupid. Oh, I know that. I know that. <laughs> uh, you knew that coming in. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Like every time I think of a fighter, there's some clue that it just doesn't work with, like the top 10 of all time, that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I'm not going to get this. All right. I'm, I'll give you one. La I'll tell you the division. Okay. These are these are heavyweights. So. Okay. Foreman and Holmes? You, oh, did, they never fought each other, but you got one of the names. Unless you just misspoke. Holmes. There. Foreman and Holyfield? Yes. Ah! Yes. <laughs> the Holyfield-Foreman fight, April 19th, 1991, at the Atlantic City Convention Center. Um, that th all the people with what was then called TVKO, the HBO pay-per-view arm, say that was the one that launched pay-per-view. And, and prove that it could be huge. I thought maybe you had heard had heard people say that, and, and no. that that might have been a giveaway. But um, but yeah, and then the the, the Nigel story is just uh, yeah. If you if you've ever seen this fight on ESPN Classic, which I guess ESPN Classic doesn't exist anymore, but whatever. Right. <laughs> over the years, it was always uh, that because I guess HBO had the rights to the the call that most of us are familiar with. Right, um, right. That, so the international broadcast with Nigel on the call was the one you used to see on ESPN all the time. Uh, well, see, ultimately, when you told me the year, the the division, and one of the participants. <laughs> <laughs> that was all it took to get you there. Yeah. So I consider that a win. <laughs> Listen, there. I feel like they're all going to be wins because we're just going to keep <laughs> giving away clues until the name rhymes with Let's slander, moly peel. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. But uh, all right. What 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 did you think of your first go round as as guesser? Still still enjoying the segment and. Uh, oh, I think yeah. it's I think it's fun, and I okay. think it's fun because folks can sort of play along while they're listening and either right. scream at us for not getting it. <laughs> Yeah. Or, or be equally perplexed. So yeah, no, I think it's fun. I guess the question going forward is: Do should we try to make our clues slightly mm. more obvious? Mm. I don't. That's that's something we can discuss. I off guess air, it depends or... on what we feel the point of it is. Right. Really, right. Um. You know, because 
it's not like it's for points or anything or for right. fun. So I think if the clues themselves are actually a little bit informative. So I actually learned something I hadn't heard that about about um, Foreman and Holyfield <clears throat> and what it meant for the pay per view business. So right. you know, I think I think if we wander away, you learned that the the, the Las Vegas Hilton is no longer the Las Vegas Hilton. <laughs> yes, exactly. which is perhaps like of less practical use. But... <laughs> But still, you know, so, yeah, no, I think that's fine. I think All it's right. fine if, yeah, we I th don't, if we don't put the, make it so easy that it's we're bound to get it. I, I, I think that's totally fine. I would agree. I, I think we have about the right degree of difficulty here. The one thing that I, I guess I want to avoid is where one of us manages to guess it on the first clue and then the game right. just ends. So right. the first clue should remain so be super pretty effective. wide open. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That fight involved two people. <laughs> well... That cuts out all the battle royals. <laughs> there you go, exactly. All right, let's move along to the news. Our main event this week concerns a major fight that's in the works that people presumably have conflicted feelings about. Uh, Dan Raphael reported this week that we will likely see Errol Spence Jr. next defend his welterweight belts against Keith Thurman, probably in February. Shouldn't be a difficult fight to make either, as both boxes are with PBC. If it does come off in February, it would end a 10-month layoff for Spence, as he last fought in April when he stopped your Dennis Ugas. And for Thurman, it will have been a full year since he outpointed Mario Barrios. Uh, this would have been a huge fight a few years ago. Um, Eric, how huge is it in 2023? And how bittersweet is it to get a quality fight like this, but to have it positioned as something of a consolation prize for fans after Spence Crawford negotiations unraveled? You know, the situation reminds me of the point you raised last week about Tank Davis versus Hector Garcia. Mm. It's an intriguing fight, but it's a fight that some people might have been disappointed by because it's not Tank versus the Garcia they wanted. But nobody can get upset because it's already been declared that if mm. Tank wins, he faces Ryan Garcia next. I think there's one way that people get really right. pumped for Spence Thurman if somehow in December or January they work out the problems and make a deal for Spence Crawford and are able to announce that if Spence beats Thurman, we'll get the yeah. mega fight we all want next. That's how this one becomes not just palatable, but it has huge stakes and, and it becomes must-see. Barring that, I do presume public interest in Spence Thurman will suffer quite a bit because it's not Spence Crawford. On its own... In a vacuum, Spence Thurman is a very good fight, uh, not as tantalizing as it would have been in, say, 2018 when Thurman was still undefeated, but a fine fight, a pound-for-pound -pound elite guy against one of the most respected possible opponents for him, but it's not in a vacuum. So in this actual circumstance, and I say this knowing full well that it may be on Showtime or Showtime pay-per-view, but I gotta be honest, it's a challenging sell. It, it will be mm. a challenge for the marketing forces behind this to get fans pumped. Uh, that said, um, I feel like this is uh, becoming a go-to kicker line for me, but so be it. It's a lot better than Terrence Crawford versus David Avenesia. <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> um, on our news undercard this week, we have a mix of fights being announced as well as two pieces of very sad news. I'll get that tragic news out of the way first. Moises Fuentes, a former 105-pound champion who fought the likes of Chocolatito Gonzalez and Ivan Calderon, suffered a brain injury in a fight in October 2021 against David Cuellar Contreras, and 13 months later, he has died as a result of the damage suffered in that fight. Fuentes of Mexico 
was 37 years old. And one other death to report, though not a ring death, thankfully, former 154-pound titleist Buster Drayton of Philadelphia, who took on such Hall of Famers as Terry Norris and Julian Jackson, died at age 70. He reportedly had both cancer and diabetes, but a precise cause of death was not announced. On to some less depressing news. Uh, Ryan Garcia has not yet announced an opponent for his tune-up to a Tank Davis fight, but he has a working date of January 21st. Two televised undercard fights have been announced for the December 17th Showtime card, headlined by Michelle Rivera versus Frank Martin. The co-feature is a crossroads super middleweight 12-rounder between undefeated Vladimir Shishkin and veteran Jose Uzcategui. And opening the show is a bantamweight 12-rounder between Vincent Astrolabio and Nikolai Potapov. The December 10th Crawford Avenesian pay-per-view undercard has been announced, and among the notable names in action will be Arnold Hagai and Chris Cyborg. And lastly, with the circus with Connor Ben behind him, Chris Eubank Jr. has his next fight lined up. It will be against Liam Smith on January 21st at AO Arena in Manchester at middleweight. Kieran, what would you like to comment on among these items? Well, first of all, look, I was very sad to hear about both Moises Fuentes and Buster Drayton. What a what a terrible situation for Fuentes' family and loved ones for the yeah. past year and change to have been one of waiting and not knowing and hoping for the best and fearing the worst, only for the worst to ultimately be realized. And, and RIP also to Drayton, who was a damn fine fighter, um, had a stint as champion, and uh, as far as I'm aware, had a full life after boxing i believe he became a police officer afterwards and um uh, rest in peace to them both um moving on to the better news look nobody was enamored with jose escadegui against david benavides but escadegui against shiskin i really like um this is much more like it i think shiskin is a somewhat familiar face to showtime viewers his win last year against Senator Ogbeko looks even better following Ogbeko's very good outing against Isaiah Steen recently. Um, Skadagi's a step up for him, but a good measuring stick. And he probably favored, actually, Shiskin, despite Skadagi's experience. And candidly, Skadagi's more deserving of this kind of a matchup against a lesser-known and less experienced fighter who might beat him anyway than a title fight right now, given his recent suspensions and whatnot. Um Good to see both Arnold Kagai and Chris Cyborg on Crawford's card, even if neither's in a super compelling fight. I doubt Cyborg will even have to start the second round against her 0-2 opponent. Um, Kagai's opponent, Eduardo Baez, is not terrible. We saw him go the distance against Ray Salim on Showtime a year ago, but two fights after that, he was stopped by Emmanuel Navarrete, and Kagai should be favored to win this one. And Liam Smith against Chris Eubank Jr. is a much better matchup <laughs> yes. than Eubank against Ben. Two fighters of similar skill and experience and similar weight meeting each other in a genuinely meaningful matchup with real stakes for each man's <laughs> career. See, that's not so hard, is it? Imagine that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. We finished the show with the top five countdown. And last week, you kickstarted our 50-part state-by-state series by <laughs> challenging me to rank the all-time top five boxers from Louisiana. Um, this was tough because... Look, it's always a little tricky to compare across eras. Yeah. But then it's extra tricky when there are three active fighters that I think demand consideration. Um, and I'll just say up front who they are, because I ultimately didn't put any of them in my top five, partially as a cheat, where I can just say, well, their careers aren't over yet. Right. So I don't have to try to compare them to guys who fought 100 years earlier. But I think they all probably belong in the top 10, at least. Um, Regis Progre, who we've discussed already. 
and two fighters we associate with Houston, but they're originally from Louisiana, Jamal and Jermel Charlo. I think I rank both of them ahead of Progre for accomplishment, maybe slightly, but I don't even know how to rank the Charlos against each other. I mean, right. Jermel has more meaningful wins, but he also has a loss and a draw, whereas Jermel's record is unblemished. So anyway, they're all somewhere between 6 and 10 for me. Uh, could make a case for any one of them around 4 or 5, but I'm leaving them all out. Um and I think what I'm going to do here is just run through my top five in order okay. uh, relatively quickly compared to our usual top five descriptions and reasoning. And you can just comment when I'm done. Although, you know, feel free to interrupt if you do feel compelled to. But uh, here goes. Number five, uh, narrowly edging out his best friend, Ralph Tupas. I'm putting Willie Pastrano in the fifth spot uh, from New Orleans. He was a light heavyweight champ exceptionally slick. He's credited, in fact, with being the fighter whose style Muhammad Ali most directly borrowed from. Uh, very close with his pal Dupas, a junior middleweight champ, but uh, I think Pastrano has the slightly superior resume and legacy. Number four, the only fighter on my list who didn't win a world title, but there's a very good reason for that. Yep. <laughs> New Orleans heavyweight Harry Wills, who was a top 10 heavyweight for a decade and was rated as the number one contender for a full three years. But Jack Dempsey drew the color line and wouldn't give him a shot. Uh, in late 1998, when I was working at the ring, we did a special issue ranking the top 50 heavyweights of all time. And Wills was rated number 16. So... Even if you look at the 24 years since and, and you move Lennox Lewis up ahead of him, Lewis was below him at that point, as well as both Klitschko's and Tyson Fury, Harry Wills would still be a, a top 20 all-time wow. heavyweight. Yeah. Um, at number three, same era as Wills, not the same weight class, one of the all-time great Bantamweight champions, also from New Orleans, Pete Herman. Most lists of the greatest Bantamweight champs have him in the top five, some even the top three. He was a two-time champ, had a three-year reign, and lost the title to Joe Lynch and then regained it the next year. He retired very young, just 26 as he was going blind in one eye. But he got a lot done in the 10 years he fought after turning pro at 16. Um, I think the list gets fairly easy when you get to the top two. Uh, mm -hmm. Number two is Joe Brown from Baton Rouge. Uh, best known nickname for him is Old Bones, but he was also known as the Creole Clouder, lest you doubt his Louisiana bona fides. <laughs> uh, Brown reigned as lightweight champion for six years, made 11 title defenses. Not a top five all-time lightweight because it's such a historically great weight class, but maybe top 10, indisputably an all-time great. Uh, and he was known as Old Bones because he reigned from age 30 until just before his 36th birthday, which back in the 50s and 60s, that yeah. was fairly ancient. Um, and lastly, an easy number one, once you discover that he was from Louisiana, Tony Canzanari. Um, he's thought of as a Brooklyn fighter, but he moved there at age 13. He was born in Slidell, Louisiana, and lived in New Orleans from age 2 to 13. Uh, Canzanari was one of the greats, an iconic three-division champ, featherweight, lightweight, and junior welterweight. Look up any all-time pound-for-pound list. He's pretty unanimously in the top 50, which you can't say about any other Louisiana fighter. I don't know if I knew he was from Louisiana, but I know it now, and Canzanari has to be number one. Yeah, I think I mentioned when I set this up last week that there might be a surprise finding out that some somebody was from louisiana and it was canzanari specifically that i okay. was thinking about because i had no idea at all and yeah i mean canzanari's not just a hall of famer he's an all-time great so yeah he's clearly number one i don't know 
what this says this time about us, whether it's our mind melding or our lack of in-depth knowledge of Louisiana boxing that prevents us from coming up with profoundly competing lists. The only difference is I tossed the coin and put Dupa instead of Pastrano okay, for five, yeah. but that's the only difference in our lists. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, special mention, not because they necessarily... Are, are among the very greats, but because I think our listeners will remember them, Robert Allen and Cliff Etienne, who hmm. had various degrees of brief notoriety in, in, in the 90s and, and early 2000s, Etienne for laying down against Mike Tyson, and Robert Allen for helping Bernard Hopkins fall out of a ring. Well. <laughs> Although he fought uh, Bernard Hopkins three times in, in yeah. total. So, uh, I, you know, it's funny, in my research, I did see Cliff Etienne's name. I did not come across Robert Allen, so I had forgotten he was from Louisiana. Um, I'll throw one other name out there that's worth a mention. He isn't worthy of consideration for the top five or even the top ten, but shout out to the great Emmanuel Augustus, who was born in Chicago. Oh, he was yeah. born in Chicago, but he grew up in Louisiana and boxed out of mm. Baton Rouge, so want to throw him in there. But again, no, nowhere close to the top five here. Just, uh, just a, a great, fun fighter that we all have fond memories of. Yeah, absolutely. All right, that will do it for this episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. We will be back next week with our post-fight thoughts on Chocolatito Estrada and Fury Chisora, plus a look ahead to Terence Crawford versus David Evanesian, Teofimo Lopez against Sandor Martin, and more. Until then, thanks very much for listening. Be safe, be kind, and be well. <laughs>